Let's open in our Bibles to Psalm 10. We're going to spend the entire summer in the Psalter, and as John said so well, this is, this is our apprenticeship. This is where we learn what it looks like to walk with Jesus. And so as we think about that, I'm going to read for us the entirety of Psalm 10. Why, O Lord, do you stand afar off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor, letting them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. As for all his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages, in the hiding places. He murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in the thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him into his net. The helpless are crushed, sink down, and fall by his might. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand, forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? But you do see, for you note mischief and vexation that they may take it into your hands. To you the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land, O Lord. You hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline their ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed, so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. Let's pray together. Father, what a grand psalm to be reminded that you are Lord, you are king forever and ever, but to invite us into a world in which it doesn't always feel that way. Father, I pray and I plead that this morning as we study your word, we can be honest with you and honest with our hearts. Lead us in worship, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, friends, I'm going to drop a bomb of an observation on you right out of the gate. If you're a note-taking person, get your pen ready because this is going to change the way we do this entire psalm. Are you ready for this? Psalm 10 is not Psalm 8. You got that in writing? Psalm 10 is not Psalm 8. You'll remember John preached on Psalm 8 last week, and Psalm 8, 1 begins beautifully, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. I see you in the stars. I see you in babies. I see you in birds and the fish. What a beautiful psalm. Psalm 10 is not Psalm 8. Psalm 10, 1 is the dead opposite. Why, O Lord, do you stand afar off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Forget the stars and the babies. 
I'm hurting, and it feels like in the time I need you most, you are nowhere to be found. I mean, the Psalm 8 crowd, they're sitting around the campfire, they're cooking s'mores, they're singing love songs to Jesus, and the Psalm 10 sufferer is saying, I just can't go there. I can't join that crowd. I, I don't feel that way right now. I'm only, I'm only joking and making light of that because this is a very hard psalm to read. And I know even looking out over us this morning, there are some who have come here this morning who feel exactly as the psalmist speaks in 10.1. We feel that way. And if it's not us, it's the person sitting next to us who feels that way. It's really hard to spend any amount of time on this psalm because God stands to look very bad here. We spend so much of our time saying that God is ever-present. He's always here. He's our help in times of trouble. And in this psalm, someone in our midst, the psalmist, is standing up and he's crying foul. That's not how I feel. That's not how my situation is. It's not as if God is here to help me right now. And when that happens, there's a very pastoral temptation, I think, in every single one of us to hustle in this psalm, to get past the dark parts of this psalm and get to the brighter parts of the psalm because God there looks like a good and respectable God that we can build our lives on. But if you're the person that's keeping score, if you're seriously studying this psalm, there are 11 verses of complaint to only three verses of trust at the very end. And so to skim on the dark parts, to get to the bright parts in this psalm is just bad exegesis. We are not treating this psalm fairly. And into the darkness we need to go if we're going to study this psalm. The Bible, like we've said, and preeminently the Psalms, is not a textbook. It's an apprenticeship. You don't pick up Psalm 10 to learn facts about God so much as you pray Psalm 10 to wrestle with this God. It's going to lead you into an apprenticeship where you will put hands and feet on this thing and you will experience it. Friends, it is a spiritual discipline to give space to suffering and complaint. And the only way you grow in a spiritual discipline is by practice. It's by apprenticeship. It's by doing this. The school of Psalm 10 is going to train us in that. It's going to train us what it looks like to give space in our lives to true suffering and true complaint aimed at God. And the implications are enormous. If you can become the kind of person that asks and invites hard questions about God, that changes everything. I mean, think about it with respect to our children. Think about a child asking hard questions about God. If we shut down that curiosity, if we skimp on difficult questions there, it's no wonder that that works with a child But a teenager is going to walk away from a blind faith that he finds his mommy and daddy always making excuses for. We need to invite hard questions. Think about evangelism when our neighbor comes to us and says, why do bad things happen to good people? You can answer that with tight theological precision, but you're going to leave that neighbor wondering if the God we're defending has ever visited this world or seen suffering himself. I think about this most when it comes to meeting with a sufferer because that's where the psalmist is. He is suffering. And I think all of us who have spent any time in the church are guilty of when we hear suffering, hitting it upside the head with a verse of encouragement. Who of us have not done when someone comes to us and says, I suffer, to slam them with a good dose of Romans 8 to say, look, all things work together for good for those who suffer. We can't help ourselves. 
And I think for that reason, sufferers in our midst kind of preempt that encouragement by saying it themselves. They come to us and they say, I'm hurting, but I know God is sovereign. I'm hurting, but I know that God is probably doing this to me because he wants to teach me a lesson. They're only, they're saying that because they don't want you to say that. And they want to appear spiritual enough to to absorb that advice. I was thinking this past week, what if we, we acted medically like we act spiritually in this respect? This past week, I had an awful ear infection. It was driving me nuts. I picked up the phone. I called one of our members, Ken Iverson. He's one of our resident ENTs. And I said, man, I'm in tons of pain. My ear is hurting, but I know the bodies are eventually going to heal themselves. I know that this ear infection is probably a way to teach me to slow down and calm down. What, what is Ken going to say on the other side of the, the phone? He's not going to buy that for a second. He is going to press into suffering. A doctor is not worth his salt unless he can handle pain and suffering. And so what does Ken do? He invites me into his office. He asks me a gazillion questions about my ear. And he explores the pain that I'm feeling. Actually, towards the end of it, he was saying, you know, you, you talk so much about the pain on the phone when you got here. I thought this was going to be way worse, but this is just a tiny ear infection, <laughs> which is ENT speak for stop being such a baby about it. Um, when we say in one breath, I suffer, but God is sovereign. I'm in pain, but I know God is in control. I suffer, but I know that this is working together for my good. That is theologically true. That might actually be the thing that you're experiencing right now, but I suspect you dig below that a little bit, and for most of us, that's not how we feel. For most of us, that's not what we're experiencing, and that kind of two-dimensional approach to God isn't going to last a sufferer very long. Psalm 10 shows us another way. The psalmist takes time and care to build his complaint that he's making against God. He's honest with his feelings, and he's sharing these very feelings with the God that he's crying out to. Verses 2 through 11 is is the psalmist building this complaint. He's pressing in, and he's saying, the wicked that I see are prospering. They're growing worse and worse, and it feels like the more sin they commit, the more people they hurt, the more they're emboldened, because God... You might be patient right now, but everybody else is reading that as indifference or weakness, and the oppression is growing. I mean, this this psalm reads a crescendo in verse 11 when the wicked exclaim, God has forgotten. He's hidden his face. He doesn't see anything that we're doing. We can do anything with impunity. And the psalmist is crying out and saying, what is happening? You know, the poet W.H. Auden insightfully wrote, a culture is no better than its woods. Now, in this bucolic's poem, Auden is painting the woods as a sinister place. That's where people go and do deeds in darkness where nobody's going to see. And that's essentially what he's saying is, you can't know a people, you can't know a culture until you see what they do in the dark. The psalmist is saying, I've looked into the woods. I see what is happening in my neighborhood. Oppression abounds, and God, it doesn't feel like you're doing anything about it. What's so incredible about suffering psalms is they paint this perfect balance between being deeply personal and generic enough for us to fill in our own suffering. They're deeply personal. The psalmist is saying, here's my complaint to God. My complaint is, I see oppression abound. 
Isn't it interesting that one of the first suffering psalms in our Psalter is about persecution of the poor and oppressed? It's not necessarily about the psalmist himself. He's crying out on behalf of the fatherless and the oppressed. Man, when you pray this week about who the Lord is calling you to nominate as a deacon, the first prayer on your lips should be, God, bring us men who will plead and cry. Psalm 10 for this church and this city. He's crying out about oppression. But Psalm 10 is also a place where we bring our own suffering and we read that into the psalm. Do not be a mediator on God's behalf that says what suffering can and cannot fit in this psalm. Some of us are experiencing things that we fear are too big for God to handle, and some of us feel like we're suffering from things that are too small for God to care. That's not your job. You're not the mediator between you and what you bring to God. Our role as a believer is to bring everything to our Heavenly Father, and Psalm 10 invites just that. I think there's a couple of things we can learn from Psalm 10, both for the sufferer and for the friend of the sufferer. I want to see two, two things in each camp. What, what can the sufferer learn from this section of complaint? And what can we as friends of sufferers learn? And the first thing that a sufferer can learn from this section of Psalm 10 is to give space to complaint. To bring honest complaint to God. The only people in your life you do not need to share hurt feelings with are those you don't plan on being in a long-term relationship with, right? That's the only kind of person you don't need to bring hurt feelings to because it doesn't matter. You're not going to know them for very long. I'm in a marriage relationship with my wife. We've been married for 10 years And when Julie does something that hurts me, I basically have three options. I can suppress it, and that lets resentment grow and fester. I can check out emotionally, and then I don't care anymore because I don't care what happens in our marriage. Or I can address it. I can do the hard work of going to her and saying, babe, this hurt me. What what, what happened here? We have those same three options with God. We can suppress it. And let resentment and mistrust grow in our relationship with the Lord. We can check out emotionally. And and brothers and sisters, I fear how many of us have long ago had something happen in our life where we have checked out emotionally with the Lord and we show up on Sunday morning because that's what we're supposed to do at 10 o'clock on a Sunday. But we have such a superficial relationship with the Lord because we have never learned to express this complaint to God. We can do that with him. Or the third option is we press into that complaint. We bring it before the Lord, and in doing so, we will find a heavenly Father we can't even begin to imagine. That's the only options that we have when we suffer. Think about the Apostle Paul, who himself was no stranger to suffering. He can write in Romans 5.10, after experiencing a world of suffering, you know what I've discovered about God? When I was his enemy, when I hated him and wasn't a Christian, he saved me and reconciled me to God through Jesus Christ. How much more now can I trust him that I am a son and a daughter of the living God that he will save me by his life? That's what, the, that's what Paul can say because he is bringing his complaint to God. That's the first thing. Give space to complaint. The second thing I would say to a sufferer is direct your complaint to God. There is a world of difference from bringing our complaints to a cynical group of friends and talking about God versus taking our complaint and bringing it 
personally to God, of doing the hard work of complaining directly and personally to him. Now, I suspect that for most of us, our mamas didn't teach us robust prayers of complaint to God. We didn't sit down and wrestle through things like this. We didn't learn how to do this well. And so God in his word gives us a hundred scripts for complaint to bring to him. If you find yourself praying these mamby-pamby prayers of complaint, you go to the Lord and say, Dear Lord, I feel like we have a misunderstanding. Take out Psalm 10 and pray to God, Where are you? Where are you? I don't see you. Where are you? Take out Psalm 13 and say, Will you forget me forever? Take out Psalm 22 and say, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? Psalm 55, stop hiding from my plea for mercy. Psalm 74, oh God, oh God, why do you cast me off forever? God gives you these complaints in his word so that you can use them and pray them back to him. These words are going to last forever. God gives you this license. We could go on and on in the Psalms, but we could also join believers in scripture who have also suffered. We can sit with saints like Job and Jacob or Israel in Egypt or Moses in the desert or Jeremiah as he watches Jerusalem destroyed around him or Esther and Mordecai as they stare genocide in the face or Nehemiah as he's building the walls and being threatened or preeminently Jesus as he sits in the garden. If there was anybody who knew the sovereignty of God and could pray back complaint to God, is it not his son Jesus? In the garden, we have license as believers. We not only have permission, we have words to pray, complaint back to God and direct it to him. Above all, when we take our complaint to God, we realize against all the lies of the evil one that this is where the spiritual action is. This is the dynamic part of our Christian life that is happening right now. It's not when we get back to Psalm 8 status. It's not when we've booked a solid week of quiet times. It's not when we've cleaned up or sobered up or calmed down. This, our complaint to God, is where the spiritual action happens. This is us engaging with our Heavenly Father. Now is the time that it happens. That's what I would say to a a sufferer from Psalm 10. But I think the friend of the sufferer can also learn these exact same two things from this psalm. I think the friend of the sufferer needs to learn to give space to complaint. Do not shortchange this critical process when you see somebody suffering. When we hit somebody with a dose of Romans 8, the second they start talking about suffering... We've taught them something we would be horrified to know that we've taught them. If they start talking about pain and doubting God's presence, and we cut that off with a Bible verse or an encouragement, you know what we've taught them? We've taught them that the church is not a safe place to suffer. We've taught them that Jesus' arms aren't big enough to carry what they carry. Woe to the friend who does that. Woe to the friend who shortchanges complaint to the Lord and teaches this person completely something different about the Lord. When a friend comes to us and says very diplomatically, I suffer, but I know God is sovereign, that's when we brew a pot of coffee, we pull up a chair, and we say, tell me about that. Tell me about your suffering. What does that feel like right now? What is that like for you? What are you experiencing right now? What does that mean for your prayers? How do you view God right now? We press 
into suffering. We ask questions about suffering. We give space to complaint. And when we do that, we teach somebody something that is invaluable to their Christian life. We say to them, God is not just meeting you on Sunday morning in your smiles and in your offering and in your singing. God sits with you in the dark. He's here right now as we're meeting and talking about deep and dark things. That, that's something of infinite worth that you have given a fellow believer. And the second piece of advice is to help direct that complaint to God. In the same way that if we're suffering, we want to do that. If we're a friend of a sufferer, we want to help point that complaint that they're making to God. Don't let a suffering friend get away with complaining about God. As much as possible, direct those complaints to God. There are 13 second-person personal pronouns in Psalm 10. You, your, the psalmist is putting all of this towards the Lord. And in any small way you can as a friend, help direct their complaint to God. There are some times when a sufferer does not feel like they can pray a word to God. They can't say a thing to God. They can't even pick up Psalm 10 and read it. They are so dark in despair. And that's a place as a friend to pick out Psalm 10 yourself and to begin reading that with a sufferer. Because you are discipling, you are apprenticing, you are helping show a sufferer that they can bring those very complaints to God and that he is ready to hear them. Friends, I want to close with just the final third of this psalm because we move from this enormous two-thirds of complaint to two pieces, to plea and to trust. I've learned something about the psalms that has helped my prayer life tremendously, and that is you do not have to pray the entire psalm in one breath. Because as you'll see, the psalmist moves from complaint, which is 11 verses, to plea, this is a request that he's going to make in 12 to 15, finally to trust, that's the last three verses in 16 through 18. And when you pick up the psalm in your devotions, it takes a minute to read this entire thing. But I guarantee you the process of suffering is so much deeper and longer for that, and it looks different for every single person. When you are in the valley of the shadow of death, that is going to look different for you. And for some of us, we can pray this entire psalm in an extended time of prayer. For some of us, we're going to camp out in the complaint section for days or weeks. For some of us, we're going to pray through this entire psalm every single day or every single hour. We're going to feel the trust that we have in the Lord. And the very next hour, we're going to despair of that. But the point is, do not feel like you have to read this entire thing in one breath. It's there to process through this suffering. But in verses 12 through 15, the psalmist makes his plea. He says to a God who never sleeps, he says to a God who is never absent, Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hands. This is not yet trust that God is going to do this. This is a plea that God will do this. This is a beg that God will do it. And I suspect that if we're willing to address our complaint to the Lord, then he's going to be the place that we find we can express our plea and our trust to as well. If the only place in your life you can make a genuine complaint is at the bottom of a 40-ounce malt liquor bottle, That's actually the only place you can go to make your plea and your trust. But if you find that God can sustain your complaint, you are also going to find that he's the same person you can make your plea to. And so the psalmist, against all odds, makes this bold plea to the Lord. And in doing so, he is able to, in this psalm, transition to trust in verses 12 through 15. You know, I entitled this sermon, Finding a Hiding God, because Psalm 10 opens by saying, God, where are you? 
I can't find you anywhere. And Psalm 10 and the entire Psalter becomes like this twisted game of hide and seek. God is supposed to be always present, but I can't find him. But the psalmist demonstrates to us, this is our apprenticeship, that the way to find a God who feels far off is to address our complaint to him as if he is near. And when we do that, we find what we couldn't imagine to even hope for in verse 16. The Lord is king forever. You hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear. Let's pray together. Jesus, it takes a lot of courage to take you at your word, to say that you not only redeem us and reconcile us, but you are here to hear even our deepest and darkest complaints. Father, I pray that you would embolden us as a people, as families, and as a church to bring serious complaints to you, that we would be a people who is not afraid of hard questions, but we would cry out to you, and in doing so, we would find that you are the very one to whom we can make our plea and our trust. And we ask these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Friends, let's stand and sing together.